Those sounds are from the Gerlitzer Bahnhof subway stop, named after a historic train station that, like so many in Berlin, wore its geography in its name. The trains from the Gerlitzer Bahnhof headed toward Gerlitz, a small city in Saxony a couple hundred kilometers away, ferrying people and coal, and because this is Germany, also pickles, lots and lots of pickles. I always loved seeing how these small towns are name-checked in the capital's greatest landmarks, the Brandenburg Gate, the Prenzlauer Berg, and many more. Because it reminds me of the deep line running right through the soul of Berlin. It's not the wall, it's the culture. Berlin is a world city, a diverse and humming center of global creativity and commerce, but it is also a provincial place, pinned down like Gulliver by history and geography, by a dozen little rail lines to all of these ailing small towns throughout the former East Germany. Gerlitz is not just a regional pickle hub and a drop-dead gorgeous film shoot location. It is also a town whose bright young people abandon it as soon as they can, a wary and listless place that had a far-right mayoral candidate with a big lead late in the campaign recently. I know towns like that because I lived in one of them, in Eastern Germany as a teenager. And I lived in Berlin proper after that. As an outsider, it can make your head spin, this chasm between the free-spirited corners of Berlin and the other one, the wary, walled-off one. As an outsider, I found lifelong friends in small-town Eastern Germany, even as a kid with a Jewish-sounding name at the start of the neo-Nazi revival of the 1990s. As an outsider, though, particularly if you've got darker skin than mine, you can be made to feel just how unwelcome you really are there. That conflict in the life of any foreigner in Germany has been with me for decades, and it's why when I read a self-published excerpt from writer Musa Okwanga's new work, in the end, it was all about love, it went straight into my veins. He did that thing that writers can do for us all, putting down some truth that feels like it's about your own life, even if you didn't have the words for it. That's why I'm starting these next five episodes in Berlin with Musa, a poet and podcaster, a cake eater and Moscow mule drinker, a relatively recent transplant to Berlin who speaks so clearly already about this place. These episodes were recorded, of course, in the before COVID times, but the summer is almost over, COVID is not going anywhere, and I think this show is ready for some of the evergreen glow of these cities, Berlin first and then Havana, Cuba, that will be there for us all when this is all over. These new episodes will be coming out every other Monday. And in a particularly sweet coda, we are also going to be releasing previously paywalled archive episodes, 45 in all, from London to Erbil to Nairobi to beautiful, beautiful Beirut. They will be coming out in this feed every Thursday, free for everyone for the very first time. I'm also happy to update you that since we talked for this episode, Musa found a publisher for his book, and you'll be able to pre-order it from Rough Trade Books starting in November. Oh, and that immigrant-bashing far-right mayoral candidate who was leading the polls in Gerlitz? The Greens and the Socialists and the Christian Democrats all threw their weight behind a single candidate to take him down. Their guy, a Romanian immigrant named Octavian Ursu, won and is now the proud and capable new mayor of Gerlitz, Germany. There is hope everywhere. 
This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Now here's Musa with me, talking about those Moscow mules. We're going slightly blind here because there's no depth perception given me. That is a good, generous, well, I think it's a good, I think it's a good beginning. Let's go up to the bottom of the handle, the vodka. There we go. There'll be more. There'll be more. Okay. And then, and then, I think we start. Yeah. That's actually very generous. That's good, that's good. We'll be making, well, we're professionals. This we'll, is we'll, a professional yeah. activity. I'm a pro, I'm a poet. <laughs> Seven years vintage. I'm a pro, I'm a poet. Yeah, that is the, we have seen. Excellent bartending tricks. Uh, there we go. Listen to that crack. That is an extremely pleasing sound. Let me just pop these in. Yeah. There's the taste. Squeeze a bit. You got it? Not a bad start, okay? No. So, cheers. Cheers, thank you. Thanks for coming. These aren't bad. Hey! These aren't bad, actually. You're a pro. You know what it is? You're it's a poet. The, it's putting at the level that. Uh huh. First man of Moscow in real life, this thought. Never gonna get into that, and <laughs> here we are. <laughs> and yeah. now it's on your fucking writer for podcast appearances. Yeah, You're like I, if we're gonna drink, let's do a Moscow Mule. It but, just, it's funny. It had to be that. It had to be the mule. So why, why Moscow Mule? Um, because it's an old style drink. If you go to other countries, if you go to London and ask for a Moscow Mule, they'll look at you and be like, "That's an old drink. Like it's a drink they haven't really drunk regularly since the seventies or something." And I associate it with my first few months in Berlin, where. I was dating a, a lovely woman, um, Angela. Shout out to Angela if you're listening. Hey, Angela. And um, we go to these bars and this was like the favorite drink there. And it was also five, six euros and you just kind of get into it really fast. It's a um, traditional burn and drink, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, you'd figure, I don't know, I, I for someone who uh, loves vodka, let's be honest, and uh, also had lived in Russia, I had no idea what the provenance of Moscow Mule is. I have no idea the origin. It's crazy because I should know. It's, it's actually quite irresponsible. I didn't check it up, but um, no idea. Here we are. We were professionals when we were pouring the drink. The research part, I guess, has <laughs> yes. kind of left, uh, left, yeah. left us aside. Um, well, we should start with how, uh, how I met you. Uh, a day and a half ago through a beautiful thing that you posted on Instagram, <laughs> no, <thank laughs> which is, you. you know, like fuck social media, but sometimes it's like, it just delivers you these, these strange gifts sometimes that, that you would never have gotten otherwise. Uh, so what, what, what was it? Why did you post it? Uh, and, and then we'll talk about it. Sure. So I, I wrote this 30,000 word novella called in the end, it was all about love about my first, well, based on my first four years in Berlin. So it's, I would say about 90% factual, 10% fictional. There's an element of magic realism in it, which comes in about a third of the way in. And I wrote this and we've been trying to get it published, but there's always been a challenge. It's like, oh, is this prose? Is this poetry? Is it fiction? Is it non-fiction? I was just like, it's writing. It's about the city. And I wrote it with such a visceral form. I woke up every morning at 6 a.m. and then just wrote while it was still dark until the light came up. And I didn't write, you know, like when you working out you don't work out until you're exhausted you work out until everything's tingling so I'd write until I was tingling and then I'd stop so that means that the book is written with this real intensity and rawness and it's all pretty much the first take like that's all pretty much undrafted it's the colostrum 
It's Let's that call it. colostrum. It's that first, this is probably a foul metaphor, but it's that first squeeze of milk from a, a cow or any mammal, you know, that's like the richest in the cream, right? That's the idea. That was the idea. It was like the distilled form. And I would think about what I was going to write the day before. That night, I'd wake up the next morning, just write straight away, black coffee by the set on the left hand, bottle of water on the right. And if I go, and I wrote this, and I basically just went on Instagram and thought, let's put it out there and see what the people think. And so I posted the opening chapter, which you read, which is the, I think the first sort of six screens, like six screens on Instagram. Yeah. And you read it. And it's funny because the reaction from Berliners, those who've been there for a year and those who've been there for 30 years was the same. They were like, this is our city. It's, it's so weird. I mean, there's, there's so many uh, amazing lines in, uh, in, in the novella that you had sent me. Uh, and thank you for this kind of advanced copy of the the, oh, thank you. the full novella. But th that that was a thought that just kept recurring to me. Is like, oh yes, I know that. Like, I you know, <laughs> the perfect time to eat cake is two p.m. Yes, <laughs> just like these you know these strange. Uh, I just had never thought about it that way. But like, yeah, of course these are ways. Or the the way that you kind of, and I love your writing style behind it. Um, which just seems really consonant with the the production that the thing that you actually wrote is like you're almost kind of not weaponizing but making advantage of the things that suck most about Berlin the fact that it's fucking dark at six yeah. and it's going to be dark you know <laughs> yeah. I mean it's a real dark and it's you know uh, short days and you're saying okay well that's gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna carve a space out of a short winter day of and, course and write and that's the thing I think and also think the book. Um it tries to walk with you through a city. So, I mean, I write it in this of the second person. It's almost like a kind of like, you know, of role player games like Halo or Grand Theft Auto when you're walking through and it's like you, you're seeing it in front. And I was like, I know that it's my story, but I want it to begin by being your story. So I want you to imagine you get off the, the plane or the train and you walk out and this is the first city that you see, the first part that you see. Um, so yeah, maybe that's why it, 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 um, it connected with people. Maybe that's why. I mean, and as I was saying when we came in here, I think people really responded well to it on Instagram because it's really fucking good. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes you don't have to overthink it. No, no, well, maybe, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> thank um, you. And then the gatekeepers will, will follow, the, the publishers. The... Well, it's funny, I had two messages from publishers um, after that going, what are you doing with this? And I actually had a meeting with someone last night who basically said, look, if they don't put it out, I will is really lovely so we'll see and I said look like, we'll, we'll see who likes it and I really I'm so grateful for your interest and he had this whole plan he said the nicest thing he said um, you sent it to me after he wrote to me on Instagram you sent me the full novella which is 129 pages and he um, he said I got my bath with the pages printed out and read it and I read it all in the bath and the water was cold when I got out and I just thought that to me was that was everything for me that's um, wow well, I feel bad. I'd feel like I didn't earn the pages. <laughs> I was in comfort when I read it. I don't advise anybody to sort of get pneumonia. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> My account. Yeah. Uh, but the you're right about the format. I mean, obviously, this is this is a problem with um, being a writer uh, and trying to be a commercial being. Yeah. Is that people want easily graspable concepts, formats, something that markets well. Um, you start with poetry. You go into prose. Yeah. Um, you uh, talk about your career as a musician. It's there's not a, a track added to it, but it's no. it's it's multi uh, it's multimodal, I guess. Yeah. But tell me about that poem at the beginning, uh, which itself is a lovely thing and an interesting kind of um, 
opener to the novella. It's kind of personifying of the winds. Yes. Um, yes. So there was a, there's a, there's an amazing um, artist from Austria called Maria Bichler. Maria got in touch with me, and she's wonderful. Uh, shout out to Maria if you're listening. Um, and I'll send this to you. Anyway, oh, right. you hey, Maria. Hey, Angela. Yeah, yeah, they're awesome. Yeah, so Maria's great. And um, did an exhibition with her. She did an exhibition of found objects in Berlin. She contacted me saying, I really like your work. Can I work with you? Collaborate. And she said, look, I found all these objects in like flea markets that experience or express what Berlin is. Would you like to write a poem to accompany these found objects? I thought to myself, how about if my found object is the wind itself? What happened to the wind that... And this is the poems, the concept really is like, what happened to the wind that basically sent slave ships across the waters? What if it was really happy to do that job? What if it was like, yeah, great, like let's, can't wait to sell, this, sell off these Africans, let's, let's do it. And it was like, well, what if wind has a character? So what if wind is progressive, if it's conservative? So you've got wind that basically, it's been in the lungs of civil rights activists in the 60s, and now that wind has come to Berlin and it warms, it cools the bodies of, of queer people after they've made love one afternoon. It hovers over barbecues to chill them um, on a hot day. And it, it's almost like everything in our environment, because I, feel, I believe in the psychogeography of Berlin. I believe this city has so much depth of emotion sunk within it, even within its stones, that if I could express that lyrically or poetically, then it would be a great start for the book. Also, drawing a parallel and kind of being able to situate yourself as uh, a a British person with African roots in the German problem, which is Berlin is not an African city in the sense that like, I'm sure they would have loved to be as some horrible version of Belgium back in the day, but they weren't, you know, they weren't at the heart of the slave trade. All of their horrors, you know, were sort of located in different places. I just thought it was interesting because, you know, as I'm half Jewish and I have lived in Berlin, I've never been able to look at that history really in the face because it's well yeah yeah it's very fucked up and it's hard to metabolize the love for my friends who are hosting me in this place and all the people I've known and lived with here and then all the horrible things that happened but the the poem was interesting an interesting place to start because it kind of by using the wind you sort of able to put yourself into I mean you talked about the anti-fascist you know, standoff on a windy day across yep. Spandau or something, you know, yep, like, of course. it's like really interesting to kind of combine and tie those things together. Um, and I was there, I was there at the anti-fascist standoff in Spandau. So these are all experiences I've had. So one of the poems, one of the later poems talks about black gravity, the concept of there being parts of the city where the psychogeography is so heavy, the trauma is so great that black people actually experience spontaneous physical injury. So that speaks again, part of the Jewish experience where there's some parts of Berlin that is so overwhelming you can't physically metabolize it. Yeah. So let's say that something very terrible happened at a certain place, for example, where the um, Berlin Conference happened in 1884. So the poem that I write later on in the book basically talks about a black person going to the site of the Berlin Conference where Africa was carved up and having to wear a heavy jacket to protect him because the atmospheric pressure there of racism is so heavy it would have broken his bones. Well, there's your rebuttal to, that's right, they did have the, the conference where... <laughs> where they decided to carve that corpse. But That's unlike Germany, it's invisible. So we don't experience that visceral, we don't see, you know, we, you have the Stolpersteine here, you have the stones where you can see, the brass stones where you can see where Jewish people were removed from their houses. So you, you see that visually, and I, I'm not sure how I would experience that as a black person if it was that blatant. I think it would be a very different city. 
I think if I saw that much. Well, it's a, you know, it's a weird thing because Berlin is a place where you are having a lovely, you know, autumnal walk and then you see a little plaque and this is where they threw Rosa Luxemburg's body in the river, you know. Right. And these just, these moments kind of have a way of popping up and that, you know, I am 1000% for uh, the, the, you know, the German sense of remember, remember this shit, um, which I, I feel like uh, our friends in many parts of the world, including the United States, could take a lot of, uh, a lot of cues from, but... But it's different now because I, we were talking while we were making Moscow Mules about that Moscow-leaning district called Marzan, which is, uh, you know, all kind of a Soviet-style um, uh, Brezhnev housing that has gone bad, you know, and is now a rough neighborhood that, that even I, as a sort of uh, odd, you know, sort of accented white person, would feel strange going to. And for black Berliners, it has felt like an off-limit off zone. Um, I mean, is that part of the psychogeography of the city for you, feeling like there are safe places and, and unsafe places? Absolutely. Even today when you invited me to Pankow, I had to check the map and be like, am I going to go there? You know, it was, or what part am I going to go to? And I checked and I was like, it was fine. But there's parts of Berlin like Weissensee where you're not quite sure you're going to go, depending on what part you go to. Or in Schoenhausen, there's actually a bar here, and I won't name its name because I'm getting in trouble, but there's a bar here which takes its um, naming from Adolf Hitler. And the only reason it's still there is because its door number is the same number. So they, they basically named the bar after like, actually, no, I'll just name it. It's called Zapfan 88. And that's the street number. So every time people go, oh my gosh, it's a Nazi bar. They're like, no, 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 it's just the door number. But like that bar is a bar that people know about. Yeah, I see these fuckers on the internet with their 88s. <laughs> you see, and I think, and also, also, one thing I start doing, if I go to certain parts of the city, I start looking for the symbols of neo-Nazi clothing because they're in clothing brands, their styles. It's very subtle. Um, so if you know what to look out for, you know who is wearing neo-Nazi clothing, even though it's not like the swastika, it's something different now. It's a sports brand, it's a fashion lifestyle thing. How do you, I mean, you've been here four years, you're, you're, you're a professional at this now, but you do write about, uh, in, in the novella, you wrote it, write about, you know, being accosted essentially by smug, spitting racists of, you know, various sorts who I assume would just kind of blend in. Like you don't see them from a mile away, these two women who just start barking at you and yeah. took your phone. And, you know, I mean, like, how do you, how do you not get paranoid? Um, that's a great question. I think for me, the turning point was going to the anti-fascist march in Spandau in 2017, because I think it was just after Charlottesville, just after um, the uh, activists had been killed in Charlottesville, rest in peace. And I thought, what would my heroes do at a time like this? They wouldn't just sit and write opinion pieces or go and do interviews on the radio like I was doing. They'd actually get out there and they'd march. So I thought my heroes would go and march and so would I. So I got on the train as Uloga Shagar and met a friend of mine. Shout out to Sasha, if he's listening. What's up, Sasha? What's up, Sasha? Um, <laughs> and I got on the train from Zuloga Shagar to Spandau with him, another person to come with me. And I remember acutely just sitting on the train facing that direction. It's weird, when you get on the train to one of these marches, it's the only real time the neo-Nazis can see you because there's no police presence on the train. It's only when you get there. So until you get there, actually, it's an open season. They could meet Antifar and it's a bit of a tense moment. It's a 40 minute journey um, from Zuloga Shagar to Spandau. And I remember sitting on the train 
and I was opposite my friend and he was looking up every so often to see who got on the train in case it was, you know, one of them. And I never looked up once because I wasn't afraid. And I was like, my back is exposed to whoever comes on this train and I'm not scared. And that was the turning point. After then, I'm like, you couldn't scare me at that point because it was the moment when I, it was the day when I reclaimed the city and said, yes, it's your city. Yes, you live in that part of town and you hate me and you hate the fact that I'm black, you think I'm inhuman. Okay, you know what? You believe that. It's also my city. And I was out with another friend another time and he said, look, there's a neo-Nazi bar around the corner from where we are. So he took out his pepper spray. He goes, look, I've got pepper spray in case anything happens. And I looked at him, I looked at myself and I thought, you know, it's a bit dark and maybe we should protect ourselves. And he was like, you know, I'm protecting myself with this pepper spray. And I thought, I've got nothing like that. Then I said, why should we be afraid of them before we see them? Fear is a transaction. What if they're afraid of us? Hmm. Like, and he was like, what if we run into them? I said, well, what if they, what if they run into us? Like, it's not... I'm not saying we should go out looking for trouble, I said to him, but let's not be afraid before we have the confrontation. And that shift in attitude is why I'm still here, because I don't approach situations from a position of fear anymore. It's astonishing. I mean, that that sense of, well, I mean, I guess that's how you deal with any ground level reptile is imagine their own fear <laughs> first. And also because there's a real, there's an intelligence. The far right often get perceived or described as lacking a level of cunning it's not so much that it's more like a kind of certain um you know to use the cliche it's like sharks with blood in the water there's an acute sense that they have for fear they can definitely smell fear and it, it sounds like victim blaming it's not victim blaming it's more like they induce this state of fear through extreme acts of violence every now and again and it's perfectly natural to be afraid of them if you can find a way to minimize the fear that you manifest whenever possible. It helps you navigate difficult situations. And it's not saying you should seek out trouble. It's just saying that I've tried to find ways to minimize the fear that I feel. I mean, it almost feels of a part with going back to the way that you m metabolize the things that are worst about this city, maybe the extreme dark in which you found yeah. a good place to write. Yeah. Um, you are going out and doing some very German shit, like eating cake at 2 yeah. p.m., <laughs> exactly. you know, and, and having a nice poppy seed marzipan or something, you know, like these little things that you uh, have shown that you're kind of making your own space, right? You're kind of spreading your shoulders in this city. One of the things I thought that was really interesting was um, the way you talk about surprising visitors to the city. You know, I guess you had a cousin who visited. That's right, yeah. And you took her all the way out. To the west yes to where the the forests and the lakes are and you said you know they come looking for drum and bass i you know i give them bird song um <laughs> that to me is such a beautiful thing and it's also a way of saying it like you are not you're not constricting yourself or confining yourself into these very diverse several neighborhoods at the heart of the city you're really gonna jog jog this place absolutely and then that's how you sort of take ownership and i think the beauty of berlin um, it's enduring quality is that it's bottomless and it's the quality of all great cities. Um, Sao Paulo, Shanghai, these places, you know, they're just, you can lose yourself. I mean, Sao Paulo actually, Sao Paulo is the one city I've been terrified of, not because of any kind of crime or violence, but just the sheer scale. Yeah. It's the one city I've been to that actually felt out of control. Like I didn't know what it was doing. Whereas most cities feel like they know what they're doing. Um, but yeah, certainly with Berlin, I always celebrate the, the diversity, the richness of the geography itself the lakes, the hills, the forests, within the city's boundaries. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. 
It is, and but it feels to me always, particularly because you have the state of Brandenburg and you have um, the rural parts like Mecklenburg, where I lived as a right. teenager, where you have small, small towns, and increasingly those are those are unfriendly zones for you know foreigners in general. I just always have this idea that you know when you start to see the trees, it's like when when things get a little odd and like. Do you know, like we go to a horror movie, and the beginning of the movie is really still. Some cities. You arrive in this country, you arrive there, and there's that kind of sort of preternatural stillness. Having said that, there is a pla- there's a place I went to for a friend's wedding called Treuenbritzen, where I went to, and it's got you know, quite a high vote, a conservative vote. But there was a guy living there, um, a Ugandan guy who'd been adopted by a family. He was eight year- he'd been there for eight years now, and absolutely loved it. And so earlier in the week, they've been tearing down AFD posters before our arrival, just so we don't feel you know, too uncomfortable then he's been living there and having a great time. What you realize is fear of the other, it's so projected. It just sits in these small towns, this fear of the other, and it's not rooted in anything tangible. It's just, there's something out there we're afraid of. When you actually meet someone like this guy there, that's the loveliest guy, and he said, I love it here. And he, he was dark-skinned as me, and I just thought, it's so funny because these people are voting for the most nihilistic parties, but on a daily basis, they're absolutely friendly to this guy here. He might say, oh, well, but he's, he's black, oh, no, but he's different. He's like, he, he speaks German. He, you know, it's bizarre. Well, and that's a way also of, of understanding less of, of the monolith of, I guess, the, the racist far right. And that it's, it's complicated for them in a, in a sort of oddly human way. Yes. I, re- I remember being, you know, my name is, is a tough one in, uh, German because Nathan, uh, there's a famous book that's called Nathan the Wise, which everybody, you know, it's the, it's like an unread masterpiece, you know, everybody is, gets assigned it in high school and they don't like to read it, but they know it's about a Jew. So Nathan is like the most Jewish name, which is not true in the States, but in Germany, it's like, Nathan is like, wow. so I, I remember being in a neighborhood like Matzan up in Mecklenburg and Schwerin and, uh, you know, just super drunk and, and out partying and these neo-Nazis come and over here they kind of accost us and they're like what's your name and I tell them my name and then all of a sudden I'm like oh fuck (laughs) you know like this is getting strange we started to you know kind of our friends and their friends started to jaw and you know my friend is like uh yeah you know this guy's yeah he's he's a foreigner he's from America and all of a sudden uh Jens Ritter I remember him the head neo-nazi in town this hulking bowling ball of a dude just immediately melted and he was like America my brother loves baseball can you tell me what a slider is oh my goodness <laughs> or something and just turned into this whole other like conversation they were so excited uh and the Jew fell away and the American you know sliders with Nazis <laughs> emerged <laughs> and I you know and we we ended up continuing the party i think together as a it's like a larry david sketch <laughs> yeah but, but, but it's, isn't it painful because it's it shows how close i mean it's an amazing story but it also is it's tantalizing isn't it in terms of look how close we are to a better world like communication yeah, and like right. people if only there was a way to tell people or show people who are so afraid and so angry that the focus of their anger and their fear wasn't a valid focus but that's just, that's the story of our civilization, isn't it? But what an amazing thing for you in your part to sort of, um, to do your part, to, to walk without fear, to not assume 
the worst of the worst people. But that has a value. Sometimes you get yeah. on a train just for the sake of it and just go into an area where you might not be welcome and you don't do it to seek out trouble. You do it because if I want to go there, I'm going to go there. Um, and that has a power in it. It's almost like I'm not trying to impose myself on a space. I'm just trying to navigate a space and just be present. Um, and actually, this is a great story. A very good friend of mine. Um, I won't name him because he probably wouldn't want it. But um, we're really good friends, and we've become very good friends over the t- over the last few um, uh, last couple of years. He took me to one side one day, and he said, "Musa, like um, twenty years ago, like I used to be part of you know part of the the Nazi youth groups, and we used to chase people who looked a bit different. Well, you know, foreigners, and we used to chase them through the streets. We used to beat them up, like me and a couple of my mates." And he said, like, what do you think? And I said, well, look, look at the evening you've organized. There's like 15 of us here. You've pulled together a group of like diverse people, all different backgrounds, ages. You've organized that. You've organized one of the best weekends I've had in what in my time here. You did that. 20 years ago, yeah, you were chasing people like me through the street. But look at the person you really are. That speaks to who you are. And he gives me so much strength and courage because... I know that he is fighting those battles still. I know that he goes back to those areas where he grew up and he sticks up for people like me when I'm not in the room. And that means a lot. That means a lot. What happened to him? He just, just grew up. He's, well, no, it's not even that. He's just a nice guy who got exposed. You know, he said like this was, they said, I'm not making excuses for it. He never made excuses for it. He said, all I would say is that the, the, the youth culture back then was the dominant youth culture in terms of being a Nazi. When the wall came down, the West was this kind of, force that was imposing itself all of a sudden job security went so the westerners that came over with this kind of position of this economic superiority cultural superiority look at these like um these berliners who are ignorant so that the nazi movement was a way of like this is people who fought off communists so they we're like the a lot of the nazis sort of harnessed that sense of we're the anti-establishment we're the anti-authoritarian the nazis were the cool kids it's very easy to flip that for the neo-nazis to kind of say look the West are this kind of like alien incursion. We're going to beat them out. Any, any manifestation of the West was beaten out. And my friend was part of that. You know, he, he to some extent embraced that. And now he rejects it, but he says, you know, I'm not making excuses. Just it's the sense of we are sticking up for those who didn't, who weren't stuck up for when the war came down. I guess uh, you can ride the waves of kind of they, history in one direction or the other. Well, they weaponized it. Yeah, they weaponized it. Yeah. Because not everyone did that. The Antifa were clued up and they were like, no, this is not the way. But the problem with the Antifa, the problem for them was there were just so many fewer of them because it's so hard to be that nuanced when you're on this tide of pure emotion, nationalism, identity. And the left were kind of going, well, actually, they're both systems of authoritarianism and what you're doing is replaced one the other. But they didn't want to hear it because the teenagers, they're like wiling out. Right. I did, I did appreciate that as much as, and, and certainly my family back in the States could never understand me coming here and being in a place where I don't know, some people like broke into my house and painted a swastika on my door and, you know, it's just neo-Nazi shit going down. That happened here. Yeah, not in Berlin, up in Mecklenburg. In, in Mecklenburg. And, um, you know, what I always told them was, did you know every Saturday night, anti-fascists go with like bats to the main square of the small city we live in and they fight Nazis. And I was like, you know, I, yes, there are definitely Nazis, but they're anti-Nazis. And just the politics here, like, you know, my, it was the most real and vivid and felt to me really viscerally strong 
version of like progressives <laughs> that I'd ever well, seen. I think <laughs> because were... I think the Germans, the reason Germans are like that, I always think whenever I see incredible anti-fascists here, the incredible organizers, the activists, I think, what was in your own family that was so bad? Why are you so good at this? Not in a kind of critical way, but sort of simply saying, you look at those families that um, grew up after the war, and there was that knowledge. You're looking around as a child, you're thinking, wait a minute, all these plaques, all these Jews dragged out, they lived in our building. You're thinking, mum, dad, like, what were you doing? Imagine that first conversation where you're like, the Jewish family that lived up there, why didn't you help them? Like, what did you do to stop them? And you suddenly realize that actually there's a whole town full of people, right. towns full of people that didn't, when the tide was turning, they turned the other way. And there were a lot of very enthusiastic Nazis and some who just fell in, but ultimately the indictment of that society and that conversation is still ongoing, which is why I think that the anti-fascist movement here is so visceral and so powerful and so, because I've got friends who still don't talk to half their families. Yeah. Because half their families are like still Nazis and not neo-Nazis, actually Nazis who, there's no neo, there's no kind of derivative. These are actual Nazis. These are like OG, yeah, Hitler real, did, OGs, Hitler, Indiana Jones Hitler Nazis. was right, didn't finish the job, like all that lot, that, yeah. that, yeah, that crowd. They do exist. Um, tell me how you got, and, and you, you engaged this question a few times in the novella, but mm. why did you come to Berlin? A variety of things. Um, one key prompt was a conversation I had with a friend of mine, an architect in Brazil. I was there during the World Cup to cover football as well. So I was covering football for a couple of different organizations. Um, shout out to my editor, Tony Karen, Max Strasser, my editors. Back Tony? Then, back, yeah, Tony Karen, the big my, man. My old uh, comrade in arms. Hey, that's a great man. So I was doing some work out there at the World Cup and a friend of mine, we were having dinner together and he said, look, why are you still in the UK? You're so international in your outlook. Why not Berlin? Um, and I was like, Berlin, I'm not sure about. And then I suddenly thought, wait, I did German 20 years ago for my A-level. Like, this is a language that I have. Why did you do German? Because this is the weird, this was the foresight of it. I thought, German's a really hard European language. Of all the languages, you've got Italian, French. My French is pretty good. I thought I can pick up Italian and Spanish through French. German's the outlier of those main ones. If I do that now, my brain is still pretty supple. I can re I can pick it up again later. So that was the kind of the foresight of like, get German now. The nubile young brain of Musa <laughs> taking on the language of Goethe. And, and, but you went into law Goethe, after real that. Good. Absolutely. The plan was maybe at one point to do law with maybe EU law, European lawyer. Um, so in a different life, I'm an EU competition lawyer in The Hague, which is a you know, great living and uh, a great job. But I'm, I'm happy doing this. Uh, yeah, you don't get to drink Moscow mules as part of your competition. Not, not, not at 4 p.m., no. <laughs> no, that is that is true. Um, but, I, I mean, it, you do have this kind of, I mean, obviously you just kind of, you know, you succeed wherever you go. But someone who has studied law at Oxford and decided to then uh, create music and art and poetry and writing, yeah. why does Berlin fit into that? I mean, is a, it is a at a place, how does it fit in with your creative work and the fact that this is the, the, the journey that you're taking? It may be in many ways the perfect atmosphere for me to create work, me specifically, because for all the challenges with the far right, one thing I think I do say in the novella is that Berlin is a city of extremes. So for the negatives, the positives are astonishing. I've met the best people here, the very best people I've ever met anywhere. Um, within two years of being here, I was... Um, marrying, I was basically doing, conducting the wedding ceremony for Sasha and Bortru, uh, two of my best friends here now. They were like, we want you to do it. And these are popular people. They know a lot of people. They were like, we want you to do the ceremony. So when you come to Berlin, when people embrace you, 
they take you to their very hearts. So we have the kind of the community which is essential for any artist, but also Berlin has this astonishing stillness. It has a change of pace unlike anywhere. So a friend of mine came here and he said, Musa, my goodness, where is everyone? You hear about Berlin being this rave city, where is everyone? And I was like, be careful what you wish for. Because if you want Berlin to change pace, go to nightclub at 12.30 and then you'll see it. The next half hour you'll see it. 12.30 to 1 a.m., you'll be begging for it to slow down again. And I love that because Berlin starts so early and goes on so late that you never miss a night out. You never miss a great experience. So for a writer, it's perfect. You can walk its long streets and contemplate and then you can just disappear into it that night. Would you feel differently if you came and had not studied German, did not yes. speak German or take it on? Yes, yes, because I made a deliberate choice when I got here not to go to expat societies but to come here and engage with the city on its own terms. So I didn't seek out fellow English speakers. I went to the nightclubs by myself. I, know, I had one rule when I was socializing. I was like, when you come here, don't be desperate to meet new people. Turn up to a night, poetry night, hip hop night, whatever. Have a good time, have a dance, nod, whatever, and then head off. And then what happens is, of course, after like two or three times you go, some people are like, oh, who's that guy? Like, they invite you over, come to this. And because you don't impose yourself in that way, you're just doing your thing, People respond to you, they gravitate towards you. Um, and I did that, and that was, I think, the key to making such good friends here. I didn't kind of force myself into, into the space. I think that a lot of the conversations I'm going to have here, if they're anything like the 10,000 conversations I've had in Berlin in past years, will have some element of uh, nostalgia, slight regret at the pace of change. Um, it, you know, the best Berlin is always hovering somewhere between five and 25 years in the past. <laughs> do you, do you feel that sense? Uh, you, you sound remarkably kind of uh, sanguine about not just Berlin, but Berlin right now. Yeah. I think because I think as a, as a black man, frankly, I mean, for me to romanticize Berlin of the 1990s would be difficult. Um, but I think, you know, there are major challenges with Berlin, primarily gentrification of which I'm a part, of course, just moving here, although I'm not structurally responsible for it. I benefit from it. Um, I don't believe the best Berlin has gone. I think that you have to believe the best is ahead. I think that's important because what's that great um, phrase that your words determine your, your reality and the way you talk about a city for constantly nostalgic and reaching back and saying that was better then. Well, actually, well, yeah, a lot of that stuff was better, but fundamentally what was better was the prices. I mean, capitalism is basically swallowing up parts of the city, but that's not the people's fault. The people didn't lose any soul. The people didn't lose that, that the city failed them or the capitalist system failed them, but the spirit of Berlin is still there. If you say to me, oh my goodness, Berlin hasn't got the real people, well, I'll give you a list of 25 people that would disprove that. I'll put 25 people in a room from Berlin against any city in the world and you'll be like, wow, like that's an incredible place. To assemble that variety of incredible people from that city, it must have something special. And I could do that anywhere. Like that's a, that's no problem for me. Yeah. And it is true that very often, no matter where you are, you're sort of telling on yourself when you're like, this place isn't fun anymore. <laughs> because also, I always think, what are you, I mean, we'll say that to me. I'm like, what are you bringing to the table? It's like when you're at university, people go, oh, I went to such and such university. I'm like, yeah, but what did you do there? Like, what do you get up to? Your student societies? Were you like, you know, do some activism? Did you run a magazine? Did you like throw some cool parties? Like, what did you do there? Don't just turn up and be like, don't, I remember when I was at university and someone goes, oh my goodness, I heard the vibe at this club was really amazing. I was like, 
you're standing with a cocktail glass in the middle of a dance floor. The vibe you're talking about, you're standing in it. Like, you know, so it's almost, people come here and they like, they want to be entertained. But to me, it's like, you got to give. Berlin's like a cookout. Bring a dish, you know? Amazing. Bring right. a dish. And if you want the Berlin of the salons or the squat culture or, um, you know, kind of punk bands in a burnt out shell of a building, like, well, go and create some of that. Get yourself out there. Oh, my friend, uh, shout out to Jumi. Jumi set up one of the best um, poetry nights I've ever been to. I did the best gig of my life at this place. It's called a Poetry Meets Soul series, Poetry Meets Hip Hop. This is like this amazing place. It's a Viennois Köln in Hermannstrasse. You go down there. So every two months on a Saturday night, if you don't get there at 8 p.m., which is the start, you won't get in. 250 people got in the night I was there. 200 got turned back. Wow. So I now get there an hour early. I get there at seven with my glass of whatever, probably Moscow Mule. Because <laughs> I love soaking that. up the energy because you go, it starts, the night starts at sort of 7.30, goes until 1 a.m. And you see your entire infrastructure, ecosystem of Berlin in there. The entire sort of social ecosystem is there. And I just think, well, Jumi created that. She was a black woman who grew up in Aachen, I think Nigerian heritage, who basically was like, I'm going to go and create culture or a place for it. And that, the best Berliners do that all the time. Shout out Jumi. Shout out Jumi. All right, let's get a refresher on this Moscow mule. And then, I, then I got to talk food and football with you. Can't wait. So and close. Of course, I am the kind of asshole who, looking at vodkas and duty-free saw the Japanese one and I was like, okay, Japanese vodka. Did you get it because it was different? Yeah. I, I, love, I love getting stuff that's different. I always um, try that. If but, I go to a bar and see a beer on the tap that I haven't had, I always get that one. Tell me about food and drink here then because right. it's, it's, it's funny. It's un, uh, an unexpected um, and frequent guest in your novella. Right. It's, a, <laughs> it's the food moment. Yeah, that's right. Something. So tell me, tell me why, why that speaks to you when you have to talk about your life in the city where... Uh, the city itself, why food gets in, in there. Food is a ritual for me, right? So I talk about cake. Eat, there's a chapter on that, how to eat cake in Berlin. And it talks about all the times I've gone to get food for a particular mood or moment. So got cake on a couple of dates that were really amazing that could have gone somewhere further, but for other, other reasons they didn't. Further with the cake or with the date? Well, the cake always goes down well. <laughs> um, no, the, the dates were lovely, and I sometimes go to those places because it reminds me of beautiful times I had with that person. And then even when you got broken up with, not to you know, of course, get attention, yeah. you then you know, there's a radioactive you know kind of shield around that restaurant, right? Right. There's a restaurant I went to where I had a really bad breakup, and I couldn't go back. It was my favorite restaurant in Berlin. I couldn't go back in there for eighteen months, and I've barely been back in there since. So I think it's still a bit radioactive. But generally, the geography of eating out in Berlin has been friendly to you. There's good moments. There's there's things that you want to tap back into and can't wonderful get there. moments. Yeah, there's um there's there's an amazing Nigerian restaurant called Ebe Anno down in um, Charlottenburg, which is just a place that feels like a kind of home. Not that I'm Nigerian, my heritage, Ugandan heritage, but just to be around sort of fellow Africans in a sort of undiluted, unapologetic form. I was going to eat there with a friend of mine, Steffi. Um, Steffi runs a great bookstop called um, Intercontinental down by Oskoich. Shout out Steffi. Hey, Steffi. And um, I was going to book a table and she says, Musa, like, she just laughed. She said, Musa, if you try to book a table there, they'll laugh at you. It's a Nigerian restaurant. You turn up, you eat. Um, Steffi had to break down. The, yeah, uh, yeah, she had to break down, bring down Africa to me, but she yeah. was right. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, food is a kind of ritual. It's a way to reward myself because as a writer, I work so long in isolation. 
going out for a meal, the sense of occasion is so important, so powerful. And also there's a diversity you get from the city. You know, there's Sudanese food, Lebanese, Syrian. Um, of course, there's great German and Austrian food. You've got the schnitzels here. So it's really a way to engage with the city. Oh, also the Italian spots are great too. But the, the uh, um, I mean, talk about a nostalgia. Yeah. I've had some of the worst Chinese food uh, in my life in Berlin and, and that's, that was a long time ago. Right, right. <laughs> it feels like that, that this is one thing that Berlin is actually doing. You know, we don't want to like throw London on it, but uh, it's it's moving. It is moving. Yeah. Uh, and you can have these amazing food and people will sort of recognize it. There's that. a challenge in Berlin in that, well, there's a couple of challenges. The first is the city is not as diverse as London. And so then the, the, the cuisine tends to be um, tailored towards a dominant palate and the German palate doesn't really go for spices in the biggest way. So actually you'll get better food in Hamburg, I think, on the whole, because Hamburg is closer to the water, it's got the port, so you have that diversity. You want great Portuguese food in Germany, Hamburg's your place. Yeah. Greek food too. Vietnamese, well, Vietnamese food's pretty good here because they've got the East and they've got all that, but if you really want great food um, in Germany, you uh, it's easy to find in Hamburg, but if you dig a bit in Berlin, that's the thing with Berlin, the thing about the food in Berlin is like so much of the rest of the city, you have to work a little bit harder than you would in a lot of other places. But then the effort is so worth it when you crack it. Yeah. And again, you, you're, you're building those muscles, those, the, the way that you have to earn the summer by getting through the winter. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, love, the, I love the sense of, the sense of um, joy when you've discovered something. And the other day, a friend of mine got in touch, Shante, fantastic writer over here from London, Shante J got in touch. And she was shout like, out Shante. shout out Shante, absolutely. And she was like, oh, where's a good fish place? And I was like, you know what? Check out Fischfilet up by Eberswalderstrasse. That's the one. Get on the M10 tram. A couple of stops down. Near Husemannstrasse. And it's the stop. And she was like, oh my goodness. She sent me a picture. She's like, this is just absolutely delicious. And this is a Londoner. You know. Big standards. Absolutely. So yeah. <laughs> um, how I, I you had a chapter about brief chapter, but it was really uh, moving for me about schnitzel. Yes, <laughs> just what an odd sauceless thing uh, they do here. Yes, what uh, I mean, what what are what's kind of what's the highlight and low light of of the German uh, menu for you? The schnitzel could be the highlight and the low light, <laughs> and I mean that with respect and love, simply because the schnitzel is. Um, it's an entity unto itself. I mean, it's the size of a kind of, uh, it's the size of a turkey dish. It, it's, it's huge. I mean, you know, it's, um, it's the size, of, and it's a basic, you could, you, it's the size of a laptop cover. It's huge. Um, and they serve up without sauce. Now, if you like that, if you're in the mood for schnitzel, I, mean, I normally have them with a bit of, sort of mushroom sauce, in which case it's the best thing. But if you have no sauce with it at all, which is what the Austrians and Germans like, then it's, it's a disaster. You might as well be drinking sand. It's just so, <laughs> there's no relief from it. Um, it's an attritional dish and it's almost a kind of a trial of strength to complete it. And you feel like when you finished it, you're like, oh, you've passed some kind of test. That may actually be the German citizenship test. That's the yeah, new one. To complete yeah. it, yeah, yeah. Forget, uh, you know, these, these racists who are asking you if you speak German. Should... Can you eat a schnitzel? Yes. Yeah. That without should be the contest, sauce. yeah. Without sauce, yeah. Because <laughs> in Marzahn, we eat our we schnitzel without sauce. Without they sauce. Pro probably do, probably do. You had just come uh, to hear from uh, recording your own podcast, Stadio, which is a football podcast, soccer as, uh, as we call it back home. You and I have both worked with Tony Karen, the great, who, the great man, 
who uh, combines a deep love of the beautiful game with politics that are somewhat left of Stalin. And it's just an incredible combination. It's one of uh, one of my favorite comrades on earth. Um, what? How did you come to football uh, writing, football uh, presenting, and, and what is what has that done for you here in Germany? Well, it's been amazing, first of all, for me in Germany. It's been an incredible experience. And I came to it, I suppose my family's always been involved in football. My grandfather coached again on the national side for a few years back before the war. Goodness, okay. Yeah, way back when, way back when, sort of 60s, he coached them. Uh, was an amazing coach. And a couple of my cousins ended up playing All-America, 13 selected, um, soccer and uni. And actually one of their, it's funny how sport runs in the family, one of their daughters, Le Caribe, now plays golf for Alabama, the University of Alabama. And finished second in like the PGA, like the amateur PGA like tournament. You guys are just athletes. <laughs> well, some of them are. I mean, poet, poet athletes. I, poet, exactly. I, got, I, I mean, got you still play, right? You, you've got a team, the unicorns. Out oh, here. they're amazing. I stopped playing for them uh, two and a half years ago. Oh, no. But we, no, we, no, it's great. We won a knockout tournament on my Instagram. You can find the picture of me with the trophy. We won a tournament this summer, uh, an invitational tournament, seven aside, which I was playing in. You got the band back together. We did indeed. I got called back into action. Like the Avengers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sam Jackson. Um, so football's always been in my family and in my blood. Um, and so it was uh, 2007, I was asked, look, I was approached by a literary agent who said, look, I've read some of your stuff, want to work with on something that I'd love to write a book about football. And that was the first book I wrote, A Culture Left Foot, which got nominated Sports Book of the Year. And it was really just looking at what makes for a great footballer, but where is greatness in football? So not just about what makes a great footballer, but what is it we love about this strange game? Why are we so obsessed with it? And really just over the years, my sort of career has taken me in various directions, but being in Germany, I find that football is such a kind of um, fast track to the soul of the nation. It's a shortcut to so many great conversations because I have this background in it. It bridges a kind of cultural gap that might otherwise be there. Um, so yeah, it's been wonderful. How is um, Hertha doing? Good, good. So they've just got Jurgen Klinsmann in and- Oh my. Yeah, there was a bit of a concern because stolen he back from didn't, America. didn't do the best job, actually, I have to say, in, in the US. But <laughs> yes, you, you think? But Herder, yeah, but Herder yeah. playing some really enterprising stuff. And maybe, maybe there's something to be said for if you're in the right context, you know, you're a better coach because I think what Klinsmann has done is he's breathed life into a kind of slightly moribund uniform. Herter is a club which has underachieved given its fan base, very passionate fan base, large, loyal crowd. 55,000 people every game. That's a lot of fans. So I feel like they're almost due a kind of shot in the arm. And I think Klinsmann's given them that. Yeah. Really exciting. You went to Brazil. Yeah. How do we get to, uh, it's, it's Qatar, right? I mean, that's extraordinary. Are you going to go? No. Um, Why not? I mean, it's, I, I can't, I'll be watching the games, I'm sure, because everyone's going to watch the World Cup. Everyone would watch the World Cup. I mean, people watched the World Cup in 1978 when, Argentina were basically throwing people out of helicopters during the tournament. And, you know, people watched all, people did all of that. I think I'll watch it or observe it or comment on it. But I think that going there, it provides a, a level of like normalization, validation that the tournament could never, it doesn't deserve. Yeah. Um, and even, I'm not sure how I'm going to co uh, cover the tournament yet. I'm not sure what I'm going to do in, in order to critique it because... Obviously, by talking about it, you normalize it. By watching the games, getting excited, you normalize it. There's no question. So how do I navigate that space? But the Qatar World Cup is, 
it's incredible. I mean, I was in Berlin, uh, Berlin. I was in Brazil uh, also during the World Cup, and it, you had the feeling, um, you know, despite Brazil's personal problems uh, as a side in the tournament, you know, you just had the feeling that like there is probably no no better. It, it just how could it be better? <laughs> Put it this way: somebody said to me when I got back, "How was the World Cup?" And I said. Imagine, okay, just imagine if someone said to you, you're going to spend a month in Brazil for the World Cup. Imagine that. And I said, it, it, yes, yeah, and he went quiet. I said, it was better than that. <laughs> I cannot name a single, in terms of 30 continuous days I spent anywhere in the world that were better. I'd be very hard pressed to name a better 30, 30 days in a row than 2014 World Cup. It was astonishing to the point where when I, I went for a walk the night before I was due to fly out, I flew out two days after the World Cup, so the play, the airports wouldn't be so busy. And I was sad. I couldn't stay at home then. I had to go out and walk. And I went. I walked down to Ipanema. Yeah. And I went to um, uh, a local restaurant and I got sort of on the barbecue places. And I was just sitting by myself and feeling sad, but I had to be among people. A bit like the Hemingway, clean lighted place, that short story. And these two lovely women were like, oh, we're traveling. Oh, they, they were having trouble cutting um, a piece of meat, so I helped them cut it. And they were like, do you want to sit with us? I was like, oh, yeah, sure, sure. So I sat with them for the last thing we just chatted and I just thought I needed that closure because this is so beautiful. This was like kind of breaking up. Leaving Brazil after the World Cup was like um, leaving a partner. When you, Let's say you both meet on holiday and they live in New Zealand and you've got like a, bit, a family business in Scotland and you're never going to lie. It's never going to work. So you have to kind of, you know you have to part. And it felt like that, like parting was like a holiday romance. It was that beautiful. Yeah. I guess I also am having a difficult time imagining that kind of wistful airport scene in Doha, leaving <laughs> the Qatar. No, it's not going to happen. But, um, well, I'm, I'm sorry that I wasn't there to be at that table that last night in Brazil with you. It just feels like uh, wherever in the world I, I would enjoy having a drink and sharing a meal with you. Oh, That kind. it's here in Berlin <laughs> um, on the heels of the... Instagram pre-publishing of this amazing novella, uh, which I I am so glad is going to find a home now. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, we're still in this discussions, but um, I hope it works out. Really hope it does. I have a list just just to give the listener a sense that you know I I wasn't in a cold you know uh, a cold bath or anything. I was just as a as a very comfortable human reading through it, but just <laughs> like picking words the the way that I do with some, you know, there's some writers uh, Kevin Barry. It's one I've been reading recently where I just, I have to get some of the sentences that he wrote just down on my own fucking sheet, you know? <laughs> and I felt that way with this novella, just like plucking phrases and sentences because it's, uh, it's so beautiful. It's so personal. And it, it, I, I, you know, I, I only hope that our conversation does it a bit of justice, but whenever the fuck it's published, I, I would urge uh, everybody to just go and buy it because it's, uh, it's a really beautiful thing. I didn't expect to find it. Um, and here it is, and here you are. Thank you. You're an absolute joy. Thank you so much. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Special thanks to Andrea and Ron Benschneider, my beloved hosts in the leafy and progressive parts of Panko, and to Martin Engelmann, my Greek chorus, and to Reiner Engelmann, my first and forever best roommate in Berlin and beyond. 
Alexa Van Sickle provided B-roll sound for this episode and was very good, as usual, to drink beers with in Berlin. Next Berlin episode is with the chef Billy Wagner in two weeks. The very next episode on this feed, though, is from the archives as we start re-releasing our previously paywalled episodes for the first time free for everyone. If you were a Luminary subscriber, these episodes will be familiar, but hopefully still worth a listen. The next one is a fun one in which I get half-cocked on cheap vodka with Oliver Bullough, chronicler of London's greatest financial crimes. That will be out on Thursday, August 27th, right here in the same feed you're listening to this on. We will meet you there.